Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest this week is John Fasman who writes for The Economist. And before delving into the week's news about the election and so forth, John Fasman, I have a question for you. First of all, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Here's my question. I love The Economist. It is one of the best publications written in the English language, I would say. But why why do you guys call it a newspaper? It looks like a magazine to me. That is just a, uh, that's just what we do. Um, <laughs> we seem to have picked a name and we're sticking to it. I see. Has it always been called a newspaper? How how old is The Economist? The Economist started in 1843. Okay. And and has it always been called a newspaper? I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. <laughs> All right. Um, as we speak, the Electoral College count is either 253 to 214 which is the New York Times and a few other sites count, or 264 to 214, Wall Street Journal, I think Politico has it there. Uh, There are still votes being counted, uh, but our sitting president of the United States said today, not in a tweet, but in an official statement from his campaign, quote, if you count the legal votes, I easily win the election. If you count illegal and late votes, they can steal the election from us. All right. So I'd like to do a quick round the horn um, about gut check on where everybody thinks we are, um, both in terms of the likely outcome and uh, uh, which which states are going to put Biden over the top, if any. So um, let's start with you, Bill Galston. Well, I think the odds are very, very high that Joe Biden will be sworn in on January 20th. Uh, How we'll get there is a more complicated question. Uh, And there, I don't know which states are going to put him over the top because there are so many to choose among. And the question is, well, which is definitively settled first? Uh, If he got, if he got Pennsylvania, uh, that would be enough by itself to put him over the top. Uh, if he got Georgia by itself, uh, that would be not quite enough. Uh, if he won Arizona and Nevada, he would be the next president of the United States. If he won Georgia and anything else, or North Carolina and anything else, he would be the next president states. Uh, so you you tell me. I think the you know I I think he has probably the steepest uphill climb in in North Carolina. Uh, Trump's margin in Georgia has shrunk to under fifteen thousand votes and they're still counting. Uh, uh, I would not be surprised to see all five of the states that I just mentioned go narrowly for Joe Biden, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see one or more of them go in the other direction. So, you know, if you do the odds, I'd say 95% plus for Biden. If you ask me about any individual state, it might be closer to 50-50. John Fasman, uh, were you, um, do you agree with with Bill, are you surprised at anything? I agree with Bill. I think Joe Biden probably wins. He could win as early as today. Um, I have spent this week in in Philadelphia, and Kathy Bookfar, who is Pennsylvania's Secretary of State, said about an hour ago that Pennsylvania could have results by the end of the day. It looks as though the ballots that they're counting come overwhelmingly from Philadelphia and the three close-in suburban counties. Those have been going for Biden by by a margin of about 60 points. So Biden's been winning about 80% of them. Mm. If he holds with the number of ballots outstanding, then he wins Pennsylvania, which puts him at 273. I think it's also pretty likely that he wins uh, Nevada, Arizona, 
and quite possibly Georgia. So I, I expect that he will that 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 we may well know by by the end of the week that he's the president. So since you're in Pennsylvania, have you heard this story that some some uh, vote counters in Allegheny County have said that they're taking the day off yes. <laughs> for administrative work? But can you shed any light on that? I mean, <laughs> what a day to pick for administrative work saying, see you tomorrow. <laughs> I think the administrative work they're doing, this comes from an Allegheny County, this is from someone, I don't remember the exact affiliation, but someone who knows Allegheny County well, administrative work means checking ballots that require curing, which requires checking them by hand. So it's administrative work related to the election. Uh, doing okay. it, it just means they won't have a count at the end of the day, but it's something election related. Oh, okay. So they're not doing diversity training or... <laughs> no, right. It's not a day of trust call. <laughs> okay. All right. Linda, what, what, what are your, what's your gut check? Well, uh, my gut check, my gut is in a mess, I'll tell you, after Tuesday. Um, I, look, I think Biden is going to win. Uh, it's important to me, um, as somebody who wants to see Trump absolutely vanquished uh, in terms of a future uh, in politics, to have Biden win all possible states. I think North Carolina is a stretch, but I think he could win the other four, and I'd like to see that happen. Um, it's, um, you know, the Allegheny County thing. Um, unfortunately, this all sort of feeds into this paranoid uh, fantasy of the Trump supporters who think that there is some fooling around going on with, with the ballots. And I think that the longer this drags on, the, the more... Uh, you know, it narrows in certain places like Arizona. If we don't see something coming in today, um, I think that's going to be very bad uh, for the narrative. So I, I hope it winds up at least by this evening. But Linda, what's wrong with a narrative that just says we take whatever time it requires to count every vote? Oh, everybody who is reasonable believes that. <laughs> Unfortunately, the people packing, uh, you know, uh, AK-47s and other weapons who are showing up outside in parking lots in, in Arizona and elsewhere uh, don't feel that way. And that makes me very nervous. I, I am actually nervous about whether or not we might see um, some violence. And I, so the sooner this, the sooner we get to that 270, uh, the better it will be. Damon, um, one, of the, one of the things that people did worry about uh, was the president's uh, capacity to incite violence among his supporters and to delegitimize any result that he wasn't happy with. Um, do you are you do you agree with Linda that that's becoming more possible the longer the vote drags out? And by the way, even even if the vote were not being dragged out, I mean, if it went against the president when 80 percent of his supporters said they thought he was going to win, does it matter how long it takes? Well, I, I think it's a very concerning situation. Um, I, I, I have been slightly uh, cheered by the fact that, you know, after all these years now of complaining rightly about the institutional Republican Party's uh, unwillingness to stand up to Trump, that pretty much universally among elected office holders, um, the response to Trump's acting out since his bizarre temper tantrum tirade at 2.30 a.m. Wednesday morning, uh, where he declared himself the winner, even though he clearly was only the winner if we stopped counting thousands and even millions of uncounted votes. Um, since then, the response from pretty much everyone has been, whoa, this is ridiculous. This is a democracy. We count the votes. Uh, Mike DeWine had a great statement last night, uh, Wednesday night in Ohio, about this. Marco Rubio tweeted about it. Many others have come out and said it. Fox News has been very dismissive of him. So that's good. That's on the positive side. And that is the important thing, because the likely result is that when Biden is declared the winner, which I think he will be, 
Trump will have a huge temper tantrum. There might be some violence in some places, but as long as the institutions of American government and the media, the reports on them, hold the line and effectively treat him like a lunatic claiming he's Napoleon when everyone knows he is not, then he becomes the psychotic and the rest of us are sane and we recognize that Joe Biden is the president-elect and it burns itself out within a few days. So I am worried in the short term about some violence breaking out and on the long term I'm worried about Trump's ability to, uh, along with some uh, of the conservative media landscape, to kind of cultivate um, a, a sort of anti-democratic uh, authoritarian mindset among Trump voters. But um, in the shorter term, uh, with how we get out of our current straits, I think we do have a pretty clear path that will put this to rest fairly quickly. And whether whether we get to 270 today or tomorrow, I don't think is probably the most important thing. Uh I will be very happy when we do get there, though. Oh, yeah, <laughs> me too. Assuming that we do. Um, because there were moments on election night when I got that sick feeling in the pit of my stomach that was so reminiscent of 2016, um, when you just feel that the ground under your feet is shifting and you don't know the country that you used to feel you knew. All right. Um, let us, uh, Linda, I, I want to turn to you and talk a little bit about Hispanics because um, the president did a lot better with Hispanics than anybody thought he would and that, he, frankly, um, than he deserved to. Of course, he's done better with every group than he deserves. But it's really – I can't resist the, the irony here that, you know, a big part of his appeal to um, – his base was that he was so horrible in his language about Hispanics, right? These horrible criminal aliens and immigrants who were coming across the border to steal your jobs and rape your women. And, um, and yet, um, and by the way, you know, people like Ann Coulter, who wrote whole books about saying that, you know, if we didn't keep out those darn Hispanics, Republicans would never win another election and so on. And yet it looks like um, Trump is improving his standing, um, not just, well, with Hispanics, especially Hispanic men. So, Linda, you study this part of the electorate, um, uh, among others, but um, tell us what you make of this. Well, I'm not terribly surprised. Uh, first of all, I think you've noticed that in this election, he's not been repeating quite the harsh rhetoric, even on the immigration issue that he did in 2016. Um, and I think there um, is a misunderstanding among a lot of people about the Hispanic vote. First of all, there is no Hispanic vote. There are different groups living in different regions of the country, hailing from different parts of uh, Latin America, and they behave differently depending on where they're from. I warned in a piece I wrote in the New York Times uh, six weeks or so ago that uh, Biden uh, had to do better among Hispanics than he appeared to be doing, and that he was particularly vulnerable in Florida. You know, some of us laughed at the notion that Joe Biden was a socialist and they were going to uh, basically turn the United States into a socialist country. But if you were from Venezuela or Cuba or Nicaragua and had actually lived under socialist communist leaders, then um, I think that kind of message resonated more. So uh, the president did better among uh, that vote in South Florida, um, and but he also did better than expected among Mexican-Americans uh, in South Texas. Some of this, I think, has to do with um, the fact that so many Hispanics who are eligible to vote, therefore are citizens, uh, are entrepreneurial. They've got small businesses. Maybe they have a landscaping company. Maybe they have a, a restaurant. Maybe they've opened a, a mercado someplace. Uh, so uh, when the country shut down because of COVID, they were particularly hard hit. And COVID was a big concern of theirs because it hit them very hard. But it also is true that they wanted to open up, that they needed to get their stores open, to get their businesses running again. And so I think to the degree that they worried that a Biden election uh, might make the country uh, open less quickly, 
uh, that probably also resonated. So that's why he's doing better among voters that, frankly, he has absolutely no right to have one support from. <laughs> so in a way, George W. Bush is vindicated here when he was the one whose rhetoric stressed that Hispanics were natural Republicans. That's right. Um, all right, John Fasman, you wanted to add something. Yeah, I think that, as, as usual, Linda makes a fantastic point about the resonance of the socialism message, particularly in South Florida. I'm very happy with the news that Joe Biden is probably going to be the next president. Having said that, I find two things really cheering about, about President Trump's success with Hispanic voters. The first is it shows Republicans that they can compete for and win non-white votes. So in that sense, I hope it will lead them to do more of that and focus more on, on trying to win votes than trying to suppress them. Second of all, I think it's a really good reminder to Democrats that they should not and cannot just assume that Hispanic Americans are a natural constituency for them. One thing I found when I was out reporting in Texas and in Florida is that Republicans were just showing up and asking for people's votes and were in the community in a way that Democrats just weren't. So I think it also testifies to the importance, and I think this is often forgotten, especially among media professionals spend a lot of time online, but the importance of showing up physically and putting in face-to-face -face time and shaking hands and listening to people. And so I hope it's a, it is a great thing that the Hispanic vote will be competed for in cycles that are ongoing. And, uh, and I hope that, that both parties will take those lessons to heart going forward. Right, and not, and not to treat people as blocks. They're individuals. Right, right. 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 Okay, um, Bill Galston, what did you want to add? <clears throat> well, I just wanted to add that, and perhaps this is something that Linda could help us understand, uh, there was a very substantial gender gap within the Latino community. And, uh, and Linda has reminded us that that noun community is really a misnomer. I mean, Latino is more like a census category you know, uh, with huge diversity underneath it. But there was an eight-point gap between Latino men and Latino women. And by the way, there was a 10-point gap between African-American men and African-American women. Uh, the only place where there wasn't a sizable gender gap was among white Americans. So what's going on with the gender divide in the Latino community? Well, I, I don't want to sound uh, too chauvinistic about this, but, you know, the term machismo, um, it comes from Spanish. And I think there are... A lot of folks in uh, the Hispanic community, a lot of men who look at Donald Trump and say he's rich, um, he's got a beautiful woman on his arm, and I'd like to be him. Um, and so I think there is uh, more appeal, and I think, frankly, even in the African-American community. I mean, you know, we all sort of laughed at, you know, the fact that Lil Wayne uh, endorsed Donald Trump. Well, it turns out that, you know, there are a lot of people in the African-American community for whom popular culture means something, and it may have swayed some voters there, too. I just think um, this gender divide uh, doesn't uh, surprise me, and, I, you know, the fact that uh, he does better with, uh, say, Mexican-American men than he does with Mexican-American women, that doesn't surprise me either. This is a really big subject, uh, the uh, gender gap that has become a chasm and that stretches across different ethnic and, and uh, religious and, and, and uh, racial categories in America. Um, I, I think we need to dig down into this at much greater depth um, in the coming weeks and months and years because um, one of the most dramatic changes that we have seen in our society over the last 40 to 50 years is uh, the change in family structure. Um, the United States uh, leads the world in unstable family situations. Um, no, no other country, no other developed country, and, and it may actually be no other country in the world, has more children growing up in multiple households during the course of their maturation from zero to 18. Um, so, um, it, and there's something like 50% of American kids um, will spend at least some part of their childhood in a single 
parent home. And what that translates into is there are a lot of people growing up without fathers and without good models of what it means to be a man. And men, young boys, I raised three of them, they need, <clears throat> they need a positive um, image of masculinity to aspire to. And if they don't have a positive one, they'll find some other one. And um, I think that may be part of what we're seeing here with, with Trump's appeal to certain men is that obviously it's not all men, not, not even close, but, but I would love to see statistics somewhere about how many of the men who support Trump come from unstable families themselves. It'd be interesting. All right. Um, let us uh, look at, so Damon, you had a, you had a, pretty fierce column this week talking about what this election means for or, or tells us about progressivism. This is a, I, it, it is a rebuke to Donald Trump personally, but it is also, you say, a rebuke to the leftist agenda in this country. Well, yeah, I mean, well, of course, final, final evaluations will be pending based on the, the final breakdown of the vote. But I, I'm struck by the fact that um, we, we talked a, a tremendous amount in the past several weeks and months about how this was going to be an enormous election, turnout was going to be way up, and that is, in fact, what we saw. And, you know, Joe Biden, I think, is already definitely on track to receive by far the most votes uh, of any person who's ever run for president and probably a higher percentage of the population voting for him than ever before. However, we also realize that if that had happened only on the Democratic side, it would have been a massive landslide that some here on this program were hoping for and even predicting. Yeah, um, guilty, guilty. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and in fact, that did not happen. And why did it not happen? Well, because as of our recording on Thursday around 2.30 in the afternoon, Donald Trump has so far increased his raw vote total over 2016 by 5.4 million votes. That's a lot of new votes for Donald Trump, which means that a lot of people were mobilized on the Republican side as well. And this happened all the way down the ticket. This was meaning all the way down into uh, the Senate races, the House races, and then state houses. Democrats did not do especially well at all, especially measured by the very high expectations and hopes that they brought into this. Um, the House, uh, the, the House differential between uh, Democrats and Republicans is going to narrow quite a bit. It's going to be a very narrow split with the uh, Democrats, it looks like, holding a majority, but, but maybe by single digits. The Senate is almost certainly going to be uh, still in Republican hands. That won't be settled until a couple of probably two runoff uh, elections in January, God help us. Um, but it, the chance that the Democrats would take both of those seats and barely manage to gain a majority only with Kamala Harris as the deciding vote is quite small. Um, and then in state houses and then in pickups, the, the Democrats wanted to pick up seats all over uh, the country in house races in Texas. They lost them all. And then in state houses, they, they did terribly. So you add it all up, and I think you can conclude that it is, in fact, the case that the right can mobilize an electorate and get people to turn out to vote for the first time in a long time, almost as well as Democrats. Now, once again, it looks like the Democrats are going to beat them overall in the national vote and in the Electoral College this time. But this is trench warfare. It's, it is it is a war of attrition. It is not any situation where a progressive is going to come in, pack the Supreme Court, add blue states, divide blue states, do all of these, in my mind, really cockamamie proposals that you heard proposed over and over again through the summer and fall from the left that I think, if anything, it made it far more likely that we end up where we are, which is that Democrats actually don't do nearly as well as they might have if they would just keep their traps shut 
and just try <laughs> just try to win the most votes so that they can do so many good things they want to do and not daydream about structurally changing the system so they never have to run in a competitive election. Again, it's the Democratic version of Trump trying to shut down the vote count. And I just wish the Democrats would stop with that. So, um, Bill, I, I agree with Damon, um, though I, I would say that that it, maybe not it wasn't quite daydreaming, although you could put it that way. But it was. The, but part of what seems to have hurt Democrats, and you heard this even from some Democratic state officials in their post-election reflections, was the aggressiveness of the progressive message. That is, defund the police was very damaging. And as I know, you wrote quite a bit. You and Damon both did during the. Uh, during the summer and, and fall about how damaging some of those um, protests and, and riots were potentially for Democrats. That does seem to have exacted a price. Don't you agree? Frankly, Mona, I think it's a little bit too early to say for sure why things turned out the way, the way they did. And, you know, the, the old distinction between anecdotes and data rears its ugly head here. Uh, I was, you know, I was impressed by something else entirely, uh, and that is the electoral failure of the strategy to turn this into a COVID election. Uh, and because when you when you looked at what people said when they were asked for the single factor that was doing the most or had done the most to shape their votes, it wasn't the pandemic, it was the economy. And it was the economy by two to one. Uh, and by the way, uh, law enforcement and race relations were way down the list. Uh, so they weren't top of mind for most people. And uh, the, the other thing I would say is that chastising Democrats for failing to achieve a landslide, a real sweep from top to bottom, is really going against the grain of modern history. People are, frequently aren't aware of this, but this is the ninth consecutive election where no winning candidate has achieved a 10-point or greater margin. This is an extended period of close elections without precedent in American history, regardless of the identity of the candidates. Bottom line, we are not only deeply divided as a country, we are closely divided as a country. And you put those two things together and you have a formula for the sort of politics we've been seeing and also for the sort of legislative gridlocks that we've been living through for so long. And maybe likely to see more of. Linda, you wanted in on this. Uh, well, you know, I, I think you've heard me say this before, Mona, but I frequently remind my liberal friends to be careful what you wish for when you want everybody to vote. Um, the fact that Republicans were able to increase the vote for Donald Trump this time is not a surprise for me. He was able to reach out and get the kind of voters who don't usually vote, register those voters, and get them to the polls. And there are, I believe, as many uh, people who would be supportive of a Donald Trump candidacy out there who don't usually uh, vote as there are those who would be opposed to a Trump candidacy and haven't usually voted. Uh, people who don't vote, uh, it's, it's not because they are prevented from voting in most cases. Uh, for whatever reason, they choose not to spend their time that way. But simply having universal participation is not going to guarantee a liberal outcome. All right. One of the, um, one of the things that we have all been scratching our heads over uh, since Tuesday night is the epic failure of polling. Uh, we, uh, the polls were really, really wrong. And, and I say this as someone who has been saying repeatedly since 2016, you know, the polls really weren't that wrong in 2016. They were wrong in a few key states, that's right, but um, they were 
mostly right about the national average and um, you know all of this beating up on pollsters is, is illegitimate and wrong. This year, we can't say that, can we, John? We can't. The, the thing that disturbs me most about polls this year isn't just that they were wrong, right? Because polls are often wrong. They're a snapshot of the electorate. They're not necessarily predictive, but they were off this year in the same way they were off in 2016, which suggests to me a systemic problem. Now, I don't think we yet know what it is. If I had to guess now, I'd suspect it's a, it's a non-response problem. That there is a significant share of Donald Trump's voters that pollsters, for whatever reason, just can't reach, whether it's because they're not using the right method, whether it's because pollsters, whether it's because the people they ask don't answer the phone, whether it's because they're not, they're not, well, I can't imagine it's that they're not making an effort, but there's a, there's a response problem. And when you have that, that lack of response can't really be accounted for by weights and models. It's really hard to build an accurate model when you don't have data from a significant share of the electorate. So I think that's what I think the polling industry really is going to be doing some, some soul searching about. How did we get it wrong two presidential elections in a row in the same way, and what is the input that we are not getting? Yeah, um, <clears throat> Damon, I'm sure you saw, since I know you, you're on Twitter a lot, there was, somebody was circulating the um, screenshot of the polling in the state of Maine, even without Donald Trump being involved, but just the, 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 um, all, all of the polls, and there were about a dozen polling the Senate race there, Susan Collins versus uh, I've forgotten the name of her opponent right now, but in any event, um, n none of the polls, zero, ever gave um, uh, Collins the lead. Her opponent was ahead in every single one. And not just by a few points. One of them was up 13, uh, or she was down, Collins was down 13, 8, 9, 6. It was... I didn't do the average, but the average would have been probably around minus seven. So, that you know, that was going also all the way back to February. So you would, this is a long time standing. So I actually, I mean, I agree with John. Obviously, I think the problem is obviously a kind of failure to reach not just, I would say, Trump voters, as, as you point out, Mona, but Republicans. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, if I had to speculate, which is really my specialty, so here I go. Um, <laughs> if I had to speculate, I would say that th we're, ma we're mainly dealing with uh, another manifestation of the Republican Party becoming a, a kind of anti-institutional uh, party that does not trust pretty much anyone outside of its own tribe, and it sees pollsters as part of the liberal progressive media complex. And so, you know, a pollster calls up and says, hi, can I ask you a few questions about your, your coming vote? And they just hang up on them. Or, yeah. and it doesn't have to be the shy Trump voter thesis, which is, I think, a little more sinister, where where in, at least in, in certain of its forms, where you're you're imagining a Trump voter who actually says, "Oh yeah, I love Joe Biden. I'm definitely going to vote for mm -hmm, him," and, mm -hmm. and they go tee hee hee, and they have a laugh yeah. after they hang up. That's a little more sinister. I think it's probably a lot more common that people just say, "Ah, screw you," and just hang up the phone, and they do that over and over again, and you end up with a a perennial redundant skew that, as as John points out. As a pollster, an honest pollster at least, you cannot compensate for because it's it's an unknown unknown. You you don't know how many of the people who won't answer the the, the question actually are going to be people who would have said, I'll vote for Susan Collins. And so we we effectively have a polling industry that is missing a chunk of the electorate. And as long as that is true, they really cannot be trusted. And then the second order problem is that you have these other people like Nate Silver, who are incredibly smart, has a great team. And he, and like many others, builds these incredibly intricate statistical models that presume that the polls are largely accurate. And so the, the inaccuracy ends up informing the model, too. 
And, well, um, can I interrupt for just a second? Uh, not, I, I don't speak for Nate Silver, but I think what he would say is we don't assume they're right. We assume that we, because we do averaging, that we eliminate you know, the margin of error somewhat. I think that's what he would say. Yes, of course, he would. And, and I, I like Nate and, and admire him a lot. And it is possible to account for some of that. But that, too, assumes that there's a known unknown. If it's an unknown unknown, meaning yeah. you don't even know what you don't know, then you're gonna you're going to end up sort of either not really the model really ends up becoming sort of worthless, or it becomes so broad in its error functions that that you're essentially saying, well, Biden could win by ten, or he could lose by five, and as long as one of those is true, my model is sound, and that's not really that's not very helpful. <laughs> Right, right. Okay, Linda and then Bill. Well, just quickly, I think, you know, those of us who've dealt uh, with the race issue over the years know that polls are often wrong about race. And one of the ways you deal with that is you don't ask someone a direct question about their views on racial issues. You try to frame it in such a way that you can get the answer about how they feel by posing the question differently. And of course, you know, I, I sort of laughed at this Trafalgar Square that basically ask people, who's your neighbor voting for? But, you know, maybe there is some of that. Maybe in places uh, where, you know, uh, Trump, you know, voting for Trump, some people may feel very uncomfortable saying they are, even with Susan Collins. I mean, Susan Collins got a lot of grief uh, because of her um, her views, you know, on uh, on a variety of issues, including the court cases. So maybe you do need to uh, to come up with some proxy uh, way of analyzing how how some people truly feel on a given race. Bill, just a, a cautionary note. Uh, I know on election night, uh, even people who've been reading learned articles about the famous blue shift uh, and predictions that it would be magnified because of the different mode of voting this time, uh, we tended to throw that aside, cast that aside, uh, and respond to what we were seeing at the moment. Uh, and I mention this because as we speak, there are still 18 million ballots left to be counted, and they are, they are not symmetrical uh, in, their, in their likely political orientation. So at the national level, we don't know how large the mist will be. I could easily make a back of the envelope calculation suggesting that Biden will win the national popular vote by between four and five percentage points. And so the, the surveys in the last week of the campaign that put it at about six were not that wildly wrong. Uh, you can also name a number of states uh, where the polls were really right on the money, including many of the states that we're now talking about on this on this program. Uh, there were big misses in states where Trump did very well in 2016, and there was some suggestion that he would do much worse this time around. States like Ohio and Iowa and Texas, and it turned out that he did just as well in those states this time around as, as others. So, uh, I think the jury is still out on how wrong the polls were, either at the national level or the statewide level. Uh, there were a lot of Senate misses, that's for sure, but that's a somewhat different question. Hmm. Well, I th I hope that we will be able to get to the bottom of this and get it fixed because it's there's quite a bit at stake beyond just getting elections wrong and gauging how elections are going. Uh, you know, for example, we, we continually rely on public opinion polling uh, for policymaking purposes. We consult, not that, you know, it's an iron law, but we do consult it. How many people favor the Affordable Care Act or how many people want to pull out of the Iran deal or whatever it is. I mean, Americans are constantly being asked their views. And if we're missing a, a significant percentage of the population in these polls, um, that's really uh, disqualifying for for those surveys. So we need to need to figure it out and get it fixed. 
seems to me. Uh, but Bill, I want to stay with you just for a minute to um, to talk about one thing we haven't mentioned. We haven't praised anybody much this podcast, but but I think it's worth noting um, the importance of of candidates. Um, since we were talking about Susan Collins, you know, you have to say that Susan Collins um, has managed election after election to do something that's actually quite difficult because. The northern part of Maine is much more conservative than the southern part of Maine, and you've always kind of had to be careful and split the difference and do a lot of good constituent service and all the rest of it, and it's not easy, and she's managed to walk that tightrope very effectively, so she deserves kudos for that. But I also wanted you to talk, if you would, for a second, Bill, just about Biden, because you know one of the things that the Democrat had to do in 2020 was to boost black turnout above what um, Hillary Clinton was able to get in 2016 and also eat into Trump's margins with white working class voters. And it looks like Biden was able to do both those things. Yeah, I agree. Uh, certainly the, the national surveys indicate that. And so what we have, what we have overall is a picture in which Biden did substantially better among white Americans than Hillary Clinton did, uh, while Trump did somewhat better among both African Americans and Latinos than he did in 2016. Uh, Biden also did much better, something like nine points better, among uh, among white working class voters. And... Uh, you know, and so the, the premise of the Biden candidacy, namely that he could he could balance a successful outreach to the African-American community with a higher level of acceptability to the kinds of voters who flocked so enthusiastically to Donald Trump in 2016, turns out to have been in the main correct. And I would go so far as to say that it's not clear to me based on the outcome that any other Democrat on offer could have achieved the same result. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Because be, because once, you know, once the Florida dream went a glimmering, uh, the, the blue walled states took on renewed importance. And I think it's fair to say that Biden's overall persona, uh, his, his moderate affect, uh, his constant reference to blue-collar working-class roots and identification with people uh, who are in that part of the population certainly helped to take the edge off that group's antipathy to Democrats and the Democratic Party. And frankly, I don't think anybody else could have. So the party made not only a winning choice, but the choice that may have been its only winning choice. I, um, I, I agree with that. Um, Linda, one of the things that some of us had hoped would happen from this election, and one of the reasons that we were hoping for really a rout by Democrats, uh, was so that Trumpism would be not only defeated but discredited and that the Republican Party would be obliged to reflect on this and go in a different direction. And that does not seem likely at all. Um, the, the Democrats didn't take a single house of any state legislature in the country. In fact, they lost two, I think, as of this moment. Uh, it looks like they are not going to be able to gain control of the United States Senate. They lost support in the House. Um, the and and the tone of the Republicans uh, <laughs> doesn't seem to change. Um, the new senator-elect from Alabama told his critics that Tommy Tuberville uh, go to hell and get a job. Um, Another newly elected Republican is um, Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina, who won the Mark Meadows seats, who's the youngest, will be the youngest member, um, who, whose sentiment was expressed with cry more lib. Um, so 
it looks like the um, it looks like the reform of the Republican Party uh, will have to wait, Linda. Well, it's even worse than that. Uh, if uh, in fact Joe Biden wins, you know Donald Trump is talking about running again. You know we've all sort of hoped that he would slink back in, you know, back to Mar-a-Lago or uh, back under the rock from which he emerged uh, in 2015, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Uh, but I do think that you are going to see a split uh, in the Republican Party. Yes, there are, you know, the Cawthorns and the woman Green, who's the uh, QAnon uh, person in the House, the Republican. Uh, there are going to be, you know, the Tommy Tubervilles and, and others who are going to ride the Trump train. But I think there are also going to be uh, people who, now that Trump can't really do anything for them uh, in the White House who are, who are going to be, uh, act more responsibly. I think we're going to see a slightly different Mitch McConnell, even as the majority leader, uh, than we've seen in the past. I think that on policy issues, you may see some shifting. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that there will still be an opportunity uh, for non-Trumpist uh, Republicans to be able to come back and play a greater role. And interestingly, that's going to be helped by the fact that uh, some of the more moderate members or people who at least were moderate on some issues um, are, you know, some of the Republicans are back in office. You know, the Susan Collins, Collinses, the um, uh, Tillis uh, victory. I mean, he's been somebody who's been, you know, more open on some immigration issues, for example. So I think that battle is going to continue. Um, I'm not willing to give up on it, and um, time will tell whether uh, the Trumpists are going to ultimately, uh, you know, split, uh, and those of us who are not Trumpists have to find a new home. But unfortunately, I still don't see that home in the Democratic Party. Um, not to hold grudges or anything, but was Tom Tillis the one who wrote that op-ed saying that he could never vote for Trump's illegal uh, border wall diversion of funds because of, for a spurious state of emergency and then went ahead and voted for it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's true enough, but I hope that the original sentiment was his gut and he just got beat up enough on it that he got pulled back in. But look, well, then, I, he's a, then he's a gutless wonder. So well, they're all them? gutless wonders. I mean, are you right. surprised at that? No. All right. Okay. Um, John Fassman, uh you know, as we mentioned earlier, something like 80% of Trump's supporters believe that he was going to win this election. Um, do you, do you, how, how do you think they will handle it? Uh, will there be a stab in the back um, narrative that, that he was robbed and, and, and terrible bitterness and distrust of the electoral system. I mean, do you see that as a possible outcome of this election? Well, I don't think Trump will ever really admit that he lost. That's not what he does, right? So he will always maintain the story that he has been betrayed and I suspect there will always be some share of his voters who believe that to be true. On the broader question that suggests, though, I'm not convinced that Trump will remain this, that, that Trump will retain the sort of personal control and personal influence over the party that a lot of people are worried he will. I mean, first of all, when he leaves office, he's going to be in enormous financial and legal trouble, right? He will have – he has debts that are coming due, $400 million worth of debts that are coming due that he's personally guaranteed. Um, Cyrus Vance is, is, is nipping at his heels. And I also think you can't underestimate the number of elected Republican officials who just really don't like him personally. They would never say that out loud. They would never say that on the record. They will back him in public. But I think they will look for any opportunity to to lessen his influence. So maybe he forms a you know a, a media company in which he maintains the fiction that he was cheated and he gets viewers and sort of to make that work he needs an agreed base to go with him. So he will maintain that. The extent to which he and that fiction shape the future of the Republican Party is unclear, and I suspect it may be a lot less than people worry it will be right now. 
Interesting. Um, here's a quote from Richard Blumenthal, senator from Connecticut, um, who said, removing the toxic element of Trump could really change things. I know that sounds like a Pollyanna-ish hope, but Trump's vile and toxic unpredictability made compromising difficult, and maybe, just maybe, removing Trump from the mix could add a notion of rational thinking and sanity with some Republicans. Damon, what do you think about that? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that pitch. Okay, well, um, I, I I have to say I, I just don't know. I mean, my answer to that a few days ago would have been slightly different after I saw the general shape of what I said earlier about the the surge in new voters, uh, or at least, you know, I don't know if they're totally new, but at least the fact that Trump has added to the number of people supporting him and that this election is as close uh, as it is, at least at the Electoral College level. Um, I, I'm inclined to think, as many others have said, that uh, Trumpist-style politics, not necessarily Trump himself, who is uniquely polarizing, uniquely repulsive to a lot of Americans. He, you know, he'll be on the sidelines. He'll be tweeting. He will probably use the promise of him running in 2024 for the biggest uh, boondoggle fundraising escapade we've ever witnessed. He will raise hundreds of millions of dollars off of the promise. And then in the end, he probably will not do it. Because remember, he's going to be 78 in uh, November of 2024. Uh, you know, Joe Biden is about that old and he's done it. But, you know, is he really going to be up for it? We'll see. Um, you know, he could he could go on a world you know, a whirlwind tour around the country and do regular rallies and charge ticket prices for them. I mean, who knows what kind of nonsense he's going to come up with. But I do think that the general Trumpian style um, and that has a style, purely stylistic component, the nastiness, the insults, the kind of bottom-feeding character to the rhetoric and the approach to politics will, I think, definitely persist in the party. And then on policy, I think there is a, still a strong case to be made that there is an underserved demographic of Americans that combine a sort of moderately conservative position on cultural questions and then sort of, you know, by American terms, liberal on economics. So sort of what Joe Biden wants to do on economic policy uh, with health care, with tax policy and other things, combined with something that's even a little more centrist to slightly center-right on social issues than even Biden. And if a Republican could come on the scene that combined a kind of charismatic sort of Trumpian brash, brashiness without the repulsiveness, and then on policy pitched something like what I just described – um, I think that could be I think that could be a, a sort of blockbuster combination for Republicans. Now whether there is a person who could do that uh, and you know make it through the gauntlet of the party with its kind of economically libertarian wealthy donors and so forth is, is a huge question and I'm a little skeptical that it structurally it can work. But I do think that that's one possible future we should be thinking about. What I would love to see is some kind of Republican or Democrat, for that matter, um, who could seize the the patriotism mantle, um, who could defend the history of the United States, the spirit of this country against those on the progressive left who want to tear down everything and who believe that the essence of American history is its uh, worst aspects, slavery, discrimination, Jim Crow, and so on and so forth. Um, Whereas, you know, other, you know, more, I think, a more balanced view of that is that those are obvious stains on our history, but they don't define us and that we have transcended some of those problems and we continue to seek to improve. Um, I, I do think that the, the, the hatred of all things uh, regarding American history offends a lot of people. But on the other hand, the, res the response on the right has been so hateful, too. They've, they've retreated into sort of white identity politics and defending, God help us, 
the Confederacy, which is exactly the wrong way to answer that that criticism. So that's uh, that's another sort of bit of unfinished business from 2016 that I think we're going to continually see played out. Um, all right, we've come now to the part of the program where we all do our highlights and lowlights of the week, and I'm going to start with Bill Galston. Well, uh, I'm going to do the traditional thing and pick out an article that I think is well worth reading uh, across party lines. And my selection this week is the article that Will Salatan, who's appeared on this program more than once, posted to Slate, you know, called, if memory serves, a warning for Democrats, in which he uses the available information very, very skillfully uh, to point out the dangers of some of the false assumptions that Democrats, including progressive Democrats, have made about the electorate and the prospects for their agenda. Uh, I second that. I read it. Um, John Pasman. Um, well, I guess the low light of the week was clearly the president of the United States speech at 2.30 in the morning, casting doubt on the outcome of the election, something tremendously irresponsible we've never seen a president do. Um, the highlight, I'll go a bit off the news. As you may know, for our Christmas issue every year, we get to write a long passion piece, a sort of piece about something that interests us. I'm writing this year about uh, Reconstruction, and I've been reading Eric Foner's fantastic book about uh, how the Reconstruction Amendments reshaped American jurisprudence and really America itself. And it's a salutary reminder that our worst times also contain the capacity for renewal, and that's what really makes America great is our ability to to correct our mistakes. So that is what I've been thinking about this week. Excellent. You know, my uh, I have a son, David, who is a PhD candidate, and uh, he's reading the exact same book. So how about one. that? <laughs> All right. Linda. Well, I want to point out something that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention, but certainly is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, you undoubtedly remember Mona, that back in the mid-1990s, the state of California overwhelmingly endorsed the idea that we should not discriminate either against anyone or for anyone on the basis of color in college admissions, in contracting, or in employment. Um, and there was a measure on the ballot in California this time around put there by the state legislature, which would have struck down that provision of the, of the California Constitution. And in very blue California, very diverse California, very woke California. The voters rejected that effort to take that provision out of the Constitution. And that, to me, is good news because I don't think we should pick winners or losers on the basis of color. And I think that the way in which Proposition 209, the original one from the 1990s, worked out was that, yes, you may have had some fewer African-American and Hispanic students going to schools like Berkeley in California, but you had a whole lot more going to schools in which their grades and their test scores allowed them not just to get in, but actually to complete their four-year degrees. So I'm very happy that uh, Californians voted to, uh, again, basically say colors should not uh, determine whether you win or lose. And uh, also very much file under uh, the Will Salatin piece in Slate about lessons for the left. This is yet another one from, from 2020. Damon. Uh, yeah, you know, I was going to actually pick uh, yet another piece that made a version of this argument about progressives, but it'll be too much like we're all saying the same thing. So in changing it up slightly, uh, although not that much because I've, I've pointed to this guy before, uh, Ross Douthat, who we should invite on to the program sometime. Yes, he'd be, he'd yeah, be good idea. He's, yeah. a lot, he's a lot of fun and really smart. I mean, he, for my money, he's the best columnist in America right now, uh, even though he's a click or two to my right, but not by much, but not, I'm such a middle-of-the-road guy that's not so surprising. He contributed, along with all the other columnists at the New York Times last Sunday to a symposium titled What We've Lost, 
about the Trump years, and his contribution was, for my money, the best of the bunch. Uh, online, it's currently titled, Have We Learned Nothing After Four Years of Trump? And uh, it's a very, very nice overview of uh, the situation um, in the country and in typical Douthat form, although he is a, a conservative uh, it's it's very even-handed and, and sort of has some criticisms for both sides in a way that myself, Mr. Both Side himself, uh, uh, really appreciated. So uh, I'm, I'm going to plug that for our, our listeners. Very good. I would like to draw attention to a letter that appeared in the Wall Street Journal this week where um, – they had published a, an editorial quoting former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, who once said about Joe Biden that he had been wrong about the um, most important foreign policy questions in his career. Um, and, uh, and they published this letter where Gates said, look, it's, it's perfectly okay for you to repeat my criticism of Biden, but you left out some things. And fairness requires me to note, he said, that – he also said that Mr. Biden was a man of genuine integrity and character. It's also worth noting, he wrote, that in these very pages, I wrote that Donald Trump is stubbornly uninformed about the world and how to lead our country and government and temperamentally unsuited to lead our men and women in uniform. He is unqualified and unfit to be commander in chief. So bravo to uh, Mr. Gates for saying what needed to be said both times. <laughs> and uh, we thank all of you for listening. Thank you, John Fasman, for joining us. I hope you'll come back another time. And uh, I just want to mention to our listeners that if you are listening to us on your browser, that's great, but it might be easier for you and better for us if you just put us in your podcast feed. And that way you can take us with, us, with you when you go for a walk or grocery shopping or wherever else you may be. Um, and uh, so thanks one and all. We will be back next week as every week. Thanks for listening.